Frank, I was driving back from Portland today and Heather and I had this amazing conversation because we were listening to the tech meme ride home and about Google not making any more tablets. Like they're out of the tablet game. They're just done with it. And it sparked a whole conversation. But did you hear that Google's done with tablets? No, this is shocking news. Well, (laughs) but now you have my mind wandering. Like, is it Google? Is it Android? Who's not? Is this, do they have a Pixel tablet? What is, I don't know anything about Google, but it's a little scary to hear someone backing out a tablet, I guess. Yeah, so the Google, specifically hardware division, has canceled all tablets that they're ever going to make. They had two in production. They had the Pixel C, which was their cool tablet. And then they've done you know, Nexus 9, Nexus 7, things like that. I had and- Nexus. I should know this better. So all my Nexuses, those were Google devices. I love my yes. Nexi, whatever they are. Yeah, those are Google devices. Now they're they're done though. They're like we're out of oh. tablets. No one wants tablets anymore. We're focusing on phones and laptops. But don't worry, Android will still support tablets. Oh, what do you have there in your hand? I have a Kindle Fire tablet, and I wonder if they got um, cut out of the market because it was hard for me to differentiate between the Nexus and the Fire. Um, and as far as we know, Amazon's still going with the Fire, right? That's still a pretty big product for them. I have the cool kids edition with a rubber cover, so you can't hurt it. That's pretty cool. I did. It was like, what, $79? Shush. I think it was. I think I paid extra because I didn't want ads or something. I don't know. How, how do Kindles work? It's weird. I don't know. Well, I, here's to me about tablets. All right. So I am also not a tablet person. I think tablets are stupid. But... I will say that I really enjoy a seven inch tablet. Like it's the perfect, it's the in-between device. And Heather and I were talking about this because she has a Nexus 7 and she loves it for travel. And it's sort of like when you don't want to use your phone, but you kind of don't want to use a television, it's the in-between device. And this is really starkly different than what Apple seems to want people to use the iPad for because Apple sort of wants it to... They're never going to say replace your laptop because they have a laptop <laughs> line, but they will say that they really want it to be a productivity device. And this sort of had me thinking that while Google's getting out of the tablet game, and but Android will still support it, at DubDub, DC, at the DubDub, uh, Apple doubled down on iPadOS, which we all know is just iOS. People don't freak out. We know it's just that. It's just a bunch of new APIs. But it had me thinking, if Google's getting out, and Apple's double down on it. Like, how does that work for us as developers to begin with? I know there's probably a longer conversation and we should probably talk about what iPad OS is, but then <laughs> what does that mean for cross-platform development? Like, do we care about tablets anymore? I don't know. That's kind of like what I'm thinking. It's a tablet episode. We're talking tablets, if that's not clear yet. So this is going to be fun. Where, wherever we go with this, that's going to be our route. Productivity apps. That's kind of my whole shtick. <laughs> Pretty much all the apps, everything I make money off of are this class of app. And so it's for me, this iPad OS thing's a really big deal, um, but mostly because it's enabling Mac apps also and because there's new APIs to embrace that make your apps more powerful. But it's changes that I'm going to have to make to my code. So we should talk through all that stuff. But um, what does it mean for Google getting out of things? I don't know if I care to read into it that much just yet. Um, I don't know. This feels like Google just being Google with their 
business deciding <laughs> who, who they're buying. I mean, did they buy Motorola again? Didn't they like sell them again? They could do that. Do they make a tablet? Well, they did. They did buy part of it. They did, did buy part of HTC. I mean, they did buy, yeah, I guess Motorola and then sold Motorola. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard because for me as an app developer, I've never really focused on tablet. Mm-hmm. I focused on like Windows 8 type of UI because it was sort of desktop tablet-y in general built for that. But Android, I mean, you can really make really good Android tablet apps, just like you can make really good iPad tablet applications, but it takes a substantial amount of work to go into it. And for me, that has always been a problem is like when I go into building a mobile application, I always kind of build phone first. And then the tablet application just is a bigger version of it. And to me, that's kind of why I'm assuming that Google's like, well, if developers aren't going to invest in this, then we don't care. Mm-hmm. But then Apple is saying we want developers to develop in this. So they so get in on it so they can create desktop apps. And then to me, it's weird because Google Android apps, they can run on Chromebooks like they can run <laughs> like. So it's a very confusing message in general. And you've now watched a lot of WWDC iPad OS investigatory videos. <laughs> and does it seem like Apple is really, really saying like, no, we're really serious. You should really care about iPad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but first, I want to start with uh, how you were saying you start with the phone first. I start with the iPad first, um, big screen first. And then honestly, it's not so much that I start with the iPad. I just assume that an app can be any size these days. So I come from the desktop background. And in desktops, you would resize Windows all the time. So you always had to make your app work in a small mode and a big mode. With the phone, it's mm. a little bit different because you end up hiding a lot of UI. You end up changing like navigation hierarchies. So things like that become complicated. But in general, I start with an iPad first UI because I think of my app as a big, big desktop app still, you know, no matter even if I'm deploying to iOS only in my head, that's what it is. And so even if it's an iPhone app, I'm just thinking, how do I expose the parts of that bigger app in in this more constrained UI? And so I, I just like thinking of it that way. And I almost it, it's weird because every app I write I write as a universal app. I think oftentimes Mm -hmm. it's because my test device is usually an iPad that's just sitting next to me. And therefore, like, if I run an iPhone app on the iPad, it's terrible. So immediately I start working on the iPad UI. And then when I'm done working, I switch to my phone so that it's always on my phone. And that's when I, like, bang out the, the phone UI. So with mobile apps, I'm working on them simultaneously from the beginning. I see. So yeah, so this is very starkly different than how I work on applications because I'm literally polar opposite, but this does sort of make a little bit more sense. I mean, I also start as a every I, iOS app to me as a universal app because I don't want that stupid iPhone 4 blown up 3X size or whatever. Ah, it's terrible. I would rather, yeah, I'd rather it just be bigger in general. Everything gets bigger. But um, yeah, I mean, how I look at it is always, here's my phone. And I will develop for that. And like the simulators are there because running an iPad simulator is like huge and kind of complicated. But to me, I guess I never, I, I mean, it's weird because we both started mobile development around the same time, you earlier than me, but both before tablets were a Mm -hmm. thing. And for me, it's like, I guess I just never graduated into caring. And I believe that my problem is that I'm an Android first developer. And I think that's the problem is since Google didn't care, I mean, 
I'm not going to say they didn't care, but since they never gave the priority, there we go, the priority to the tablet, it never really gave that oomph to it. So to me, that was always the problem that I had in general, I guess, going into it, because since Google didn't make it a priority, at least from a push from a pixel line or working with partners and making the OS different, it, it was there, I guess, with Apple, how I know iOS works is it's sort of built in that it knows if you're running on iPad versus, you know, a um, iPhone, and then literally there are different APIs built into the, the the API surface for it. I think a lot of it comes down to Touch UI too. I'm curious, um, do you mm. have a Touch UI on the computer that you use the most, like every day? No. Okay. Not on the on the computer, not on touchscreens. Well, I guess I do have a touchscreen on my Surface, but I'm a m- mouse and keyboard type of. Yeah, so yeah. for, for Touch UI, like I'm on a Mac and we don't have touch monitors. We don't have touch laptops or anything like that. And touch is just such a better UI for a lot of things, definitely for reading, but for drawing. I've been holding an Apple Pencil this entire podcast just because it's a comfortable thing to hold um and i love using it on an ipad and i love scribbling away so whether you call that productivity or just i want to have um something to do on this device honestly because it's a good device and i don't want to read twitter all day i get tired of twitter and i want to do something more creative and interesting with it so i have my surface go that i purchased And I doubled down on using it recently on some holidays when I was in Wisconsin. And um, the Surface Go, I took out of S mode. We have matching Surface Goes. And do you even have the, I have the red cover or whatever? Yeah. So I I bought this, the bigger one. I've installed Visual Studio 2019 on it, and I'm doing mobile development on it. And it works pretty good, surprisingly, oddly. Um, it's not the worst. It's a little bit slow, but it's not the worst. It's it's good. But I can t- I can tell by my monitor here that I use the touch because I yes. want to touch on things. So yes, the Touch UI on that I do want to use because it's it's in the form factor where it's it's in there, right? And and yeah. you're kind of your hands are right there next to the keyboard and the and the display. In fact, I wrote an entire iPad app, a one day app, um, yesterday. And the whole purpose of the app was to differentiate between touch gestures and pencil gestures. Mm. So it was a, a noting, a notation app. And I was just getting frustrated with everyone else's apps, the way that they recognize things and deal with things. So I was like, well, this is a constrained problem. But it all came down to that's the environment that I wanted. I wanted a large surface to work mm. on. And it's a big virtual surface. I wasn't thinking of it as here's a laptop with some windows. I was, here's a big art project I'm trying to do. And here's how I want to compose it together. And so I think it has those application areas that just keeps me excited about it forever. Mm. Well, and so if your applications start as an iPad tablet application and they're universal app, right? And you're focusing on that. There used to be a day, like when iPad first started, where you would see flight simulator and flight simulator iPad version, right? <laughs> and if we're about to double down, I want to get into the complexities of what's in iPad OS, which is really just iOS. Um, but before we even get there, I want to just talk about like, if I'm building an application, am I now building two applications or am I building one? Or should I think about when I'm building an app that, and hey, no, this is a phone app 
or like, no, 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 this is an iPad app or no, 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 this is both. Like when and how do I make those decisions? I'm not always on. If I'm honest with myself, I'm not the best one when it comes to marketing and business, because that's all that that really is when it comes right down to it is. <laughs> Hold on, Mr. Mr. I make all my entire income off of building applications. Yeah, but I don't optimize. You know, I don't A-B test. I don't do those okay. kinds of things. A lot of it's OK, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> what was I saying, James? What was I saying? Whether you shift two separate apps, um, it has pros and cons. So I often ship iOS and Mac apps. And from time to time, I get emails saying, hey, I paid for the iOS one. Why can't I use it on the Mac? And so this has happened a lot. Or people will even jump the <laughs> jump the whole barrier and say, I bought the iOS version. Why can't I run the Android version? And then I'm just like, well, that's not how economics works. <laughs> that's not how the stores work, unfortunately. But the, the truth is, um, certainly when it comes to iOS versus Android, you're paying for that app twice because it consumes a lot of my time. The Android code may be 20% the size of the iOS code because a lot of code is shared, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is code is shared because I designed it to be shared because I have I have to abide by constraints. I have to use cross-platform libraries. I would love to use you know the latest version of iOS and only iOS. Yeah. Life would be great. But if I'm shipping on multiple platforms, then I have some abstraction layers that I'm going to constantly be dealing with in my code. Now, when it comes to um, phone versus pad, I think the justification's a little harder to make just because you can share so much of the code with each other. And even nowadays, iPad apps that support side-by-side need to be able to go into a phone mode anyway. Mm, that's right. Yeah, because they can actually split the UI into several pieces. Yeah, that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an opt-in feature. You could just not support that and then release two versions of the app. But I think, honestly, you're making everyone's lives miserable. So I'd rather you just up your price a little bit on the iOS version. So if I am building this app that's going to support iPhone and I iPad and potentially other platforms, which we'll talk about in the future, but does that mean that I'm going to be creating my UI twice in general now with iPadOS being really more almost a separate, a separate platform from just the core iOS bit, right? Like, is it still with all of the knowledge that you know from the videos that you've watched and the documentation that you read, is there a way that you can still share nearly almost or if not all of your UI between iPhone and iPad? Because I know that let's say master detail, the master detail um, controller, for instance, that automatically has optimizations to work differently on the different devices. You do have to do some coding in there, right? You need to set that up, but it's basically for free. So with the new complexity of doubling down, is that nicety still built into iPadOS? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, life is still pretty good. Um, the abstractions that we generally use in iOS, the view controller abstraction, which parallels nicely with Xamarin Forms as page. So it's a chunk of code, a chunk of UI, and generally you compose your app out of those. And so when I think about iCircuit, I often have one large view that's the circuit editor, and then off to the side I have a property editor. 
you know, two different views, two different view controllers. Mm -hmm. And because they're separate in the view controllers, I can pretty easily um, on the iPad do this, present it here, present it in a popover, do this or that with it, or on iOS, put up a whole modal dialogue, take over the screen, that kind of thing. It's fine, honestly. Um, The changes that we're going to discuss are actually useful in some cases to phone apps also. So, yeah, so I think it's um, I think Apple did a good job here for, you know, bridging that gap, especially we're going to talk about it later because it can't be avoided. But Mac OS getting these apps running on Mac OS. And so they're bridging between phone, pad and desktop with these Mm. um, iPad apps. And so I think it's worth time. It's definitely worth time if you're going to ship an iPad version of it. If you if, if you know if you do a phone only version, don't bother. But the moment you click iPad, it's going to be you want to invest in this. You want to invest in it. I mean, you can obviously start with the quick win, which is check the iPad and it just becomes bigger, right? It just <laughs> scales up. But to yeah. invest on it, and I'm imagining it all begins at the starting place of all applications for iOS, <laughs> which is the beautiful, the wonderful. Application delegate, app delegate, if we will. App delegate, app delegate. I remember when I started iOS programming, I came, I had most recently come from Windows Forms. And I was like, what is this app delegate? We never had an app class in Forms. We had Windows and that was it. We had a main. We had main, we had main, main, right? main, yeah, main. That was it. But what was this delegate thing? And what was its role? Is it the app? No, it's not the app. It's the delegate. Anyway, <laughs> I think it's a big stumbling block when everyone's first learning um, how to do iOS programming. But it's the entry point of your app. Uh, multiple entry points if you support background modes. Um, mostly background modes. That's where it gets weird. When you're opening URLs, uh, when you open a file from a different app, anytime you do cross-application communications, happens mm. through the app delegate. Notifications, push notifications all go oh. in there. Okay, yep. Boy, yep, they pack a lot in. There's a lot and there's a lot of overrides. Yeah. In there. <laughs> I believe not only not only getting the the permission but or, or getting the notification, but deep linking from like Siri search yes. and like everything sort of that's the deep linking stuff that all comes in the indexing. I believe also Google, if you're using Google app indexing, like that comes in through the app delegate. Basically, everything comes into the app delegate yeah. uh, in general. Right. So Yeah. It, so it's a focal point and it's where we all kind of throw our um, global code. I don't if you're a bad programmer like me you tend to throw at least in my early apps i've gotten better now a lot of code in the app delegate because you're like i need some global variables here you know database connection where else is it gonna go you got one app delegate and it's always gonna be around because it's your application (laughs) yeah it's a guaranteed location that's not going away it's it's wonderful is it still guaranteed in the future i'm a little worried nope it's gone james somebody save us app delegate is gone no after 13 versions they've decided you know what time to change that whole gosh darned model yep do we still have an app delegate i don't quite understand where's it going yep okay so we still have an app delegate but its responsibilities are much different now so it no longer gets application resuming application going in the background all that kind of stuff I know. There's this look on your face. I can imagine it. Imagine people across the podcast channels, this inquisitive look on James's face. Hmm. Uh, well, because if, if it's not in your app delegate, like where 
where else does it go? Like, I'm just, I mean, there's a lot of people. There's some people that put a lot of logic into that app delegate, <laughs> Frank. And if the app delegate's not going to tell me, I mean, even if I'm building a Xamarin Forms app, right? That has its own It has Forms a delegate. huge app delegate. They, they put yeah. a lot in there. Yeah. Welcome, James. Introducing the new scene delegate. Yes. And by your applause, I can tell you're very excited about this. Isn't every app now a scene kit app? Is that what I'm hearing? No, no. Don't confuse those two. That'll get very confusing. <laughs> so right. it's a scene. So scene. wait, so Let me, shall we I? have, okay. we, we look at all of our applications like a game and they're scenes, right? And now you're in this scene. So you're in chapter no. one, chapter two. No. Okay. Okay. It's okay. completely different from that. Just to keep you on your toes. Yeah. The best way to think about a scene is that it's a window. And on the iPad, that's exactly how it'll be represented. Or on Mac, that's exactly how it'll be represented. But on iPad, it means that you can have, say, multiple documents open if it's a presentation. Or if it's the Photos app, you could have a photo off in its own, what I would call a window. You know, its own little thing in the taskbar. But it's actually called a scene now. So a scene is how your app can get split into multiple UIs. Is a scene then a grouping small piece of functionality of your apps? Because when I think of an app delegate, it has your whole app. But would a scene be, for instance, here's my editor, here's my photo thing in general? Or is it just copies of, like there's multiple scenes of your app? So actually, that's a question that Apple was a little bit vague in their answer for. But the general rule of thumb is going to be that it's your full app in every one of these windows. Technically, it's up to you. You're in control here. So when you create one of these scenes, you could put an image on there and nothing else, no other UI, not even a way to close it. You know, you could be terrible like that. But what Apple says is that you should be able to get back to any of the data or at least to be able to perform operations on whatever data you're presenting. So the better way to think about it maybe is that you want a deep link, <clears throat> deep link into your app. So in a different scene, show a different part of the UI. In another scene, show mm -hmm. a, that other part of the UI. Think, yeah, um, different data nodes of your app. Got it. So you can create a scene into a specific area. So when I spin up a new scene, I'm going to say this scene is going to navigate down into the photo editor of it. And this one is the photo preview deep link into the scene. Is that an accurate representation? Yeah. Uh, but maybe before we get too much further ahead, we should talk about how scenes are created because I think that's the most important thing. Okay. And Apple makes it pretty clear that scenes should only be created when the user does something. So something kind of physical. And the one that they prefer is drag and drop. So say I'm in a photos app, I long press on a photo, it picks up, and now I move it to the right edge of the screen. It pops into a new window area. You let go. The app should deep link into that photo itself. Mm. So think of it as a content level. And that's the way Apple wants you to think of it also, is that you're dragging content around to create these new copies of your app. I see. So literally, I drag and drop it over. That kicks in. It's going to say, hey, I need a new scene. And... And, it, and probably that drag and drop action is going to have some data associated with it to say, now I want to start up this scene, start it up. And does that go through the app delegate? 
<laughs> it's also confusing. So no. <laughs> oh. The app delegate creates something like a scene controller, a scene manager, you know, one of those kinds of names. Oh, I see. And your app delegate will be notified when a scene is created and when a scene is destroyed. But otherwise, it's up to the scenes to know I'm activated, deactivated, not activated. So imagine this scenario, James. We Let's do a Photos app just because it's easiest to think about. Photos. I really think <laughs> that the photo app, that's easy to make the connection to. And we've been using it throughout <laughs> yeah. the entire podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Photos app. Um, someone has dragged out 20 pictures and created all these virtual desktops on their iPad mm-hmm. with all these different pictures with different things snapped to them. But then... 30 days go by and they haven't used our photos app because they didn't like it or I don't know (laughs) something, you Mm -hmm. know, basically though, the OS has shut down the app. It's no longer executing in memory. It's no longer frozen, nothing like that. So when your app starts up, it needs to restore not just its own UI, James, but like, let's Mm -hmm. say 15 copies of its UI. So it has kind of profound impacts on how you architect your app. Because at any point in time, scenes can be created and destroyed. You need to make sure that your app is very flexible in that regard. It can bring up and tear down root-based UIs with deep linking very quickly. And not quickly, but you know, it can do it reliably and well. Got it. Got it. Well, I want to go deeper into this, Frank, and learn about how things are handled from the user and how the activities work. <laughs> oh, well, let's whoa. first... Oh, I got to tee that one up for you after the break. Let's thank our good sponsor, an amazing sponsor this week, our good friends at Telerik. Yes, you know Telerik. The team over at Progress has been working on all sorts of awesome things that we want to tell you about. First and foremost, Blazor support. They totally got you covered. Every little bit of web UI component that you could possibly need for your Blazor applications, they got you covered. Because Telerik, they have all those different platforms already covered, and now they got Blazor. So if you're doing ASP.NET, Core, TypeScript, Angular, JavaScript, Blazor, they got you covered. They got everything that you could possibly want. If you're building mobile apps, don't worry. They got you covered there too. Telerik UI for Xamarin offers one of the most beautiful toolkits and variety of controls for iOS, Android, and UWP. They just recently released their brand new PDF viewer control. I get this question all the time. How do I view a PDF? How do I edit a PDF? How do I get this thing? They got you covered. They got pop-ups, they got charts, they got graphs, they got doc layout controls, all this stuff. It's all built into VS 2019. You can get it. Just go to Telerik.com. That's it, Telerik.com. Check out all their beautiful controls. And thanks to Telerik for sponsoring this week's pod. Thank you, Telerik. I was just saying, I need to use more controls. (laughs) More controls. All right, so how do we get control and access of all these crazy scenes? Like, how am I going to actually manage this shenanigans? I'm very worried, Frank, Mm -hmm. about my app all of a sudden. I I don't know why we did this podcast. Now I'm just worried. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. And I'm going to have to edit this podcast and be worried again, by the way. Mm. Yeah, that's right, because it's been actually keeping me up at night, and mine should actually be easy, but I've been a little worried, because it's, yeah, it's never had two circuits open at once. That's crazy talk, too. (laughs) So, uh yeah, so, um, James, let me remind you of an old class, an old friend of ours called NS User Activity. This is a foundation class with a very innocuous name, NSU User Activity. That could mean anything, you say. And yes, James, 
it does mean literally anything. So before I said that, um, the normal user motion (laughs) that you're going to do is drag and drop to create a new window. That's Apple's kind of preferred one. Though technically you could click a button and you could pop up your own thing. And you had mentioned there, I assume that there's some data that goes with the drag and drop uh, to make this happen. Well, James, that data is an NS user activity. Of course it is. Oh gosh. Yes. For, is it, are they just leveraging the handoff API to like hand off to the own yourself? Stupid. Yep. Classic. Okay. So you, you, you got to the end there. I was going to stretch this one out a little bit longer. Yeah. But if you've ever done any work to support handoff, then I think you already have a decent idea of how this is all going to work. So yeah. Now people probably don't know what handoff is because I'm right. assuming that nobody makes their app eligible for handoff. I'm just saying. Do you want to explain or shot? Uh well, so how I understand it is let's say that you have your app on iPad and iPhone, you can sort of synchronize the data between them working together and you make things handoffified. So you say this state is handed off from my iPhone to my iPad and it kind of sucks up the state over there. So if you're on a login page and you're filling off stuff, you can literally have a little pop-up dialogue um, that says, hey, I'm ready. Very similar, basic use case. You open a website on your iPhone, on your Mac, or on your iPad. It says, hey, do you want to open this tab also here? Because we noticed that you're also using this on your iPhone. Is that correct? Yep. How did I do? Yep. Nailed it. Yep. Yes. I um I kind of love the feature, to be honest. Um, I do it for Maps a lot. I'll be on a desktop, I'll find it on Maps, pick up my phone and just swipe up and there it is on Maps, calendar, email. It makes sense. Um, definitely if you have, it, it's for crossing this boundary. Like if, if it's only an iPhone app, it doesn't make much sense to have handoff from iPhone to iPhone because when are you ever going to have an iPhone? But the moment you have a desktop or an iPad app, it makes sense to start thinking about it. And as you said, it also ties into Siri things. So if you want to do Siri integration, then you also have to start labeling. And let's get right down to it. It's the commands in your app. It's the different areas in your app. You have to start labeling these things and telling the OS about these deep links is what they're often called. Is that an Android term? It might even be a it, it, it might even be an iOS term, but the concept is all there that you need to tell the OS, here is where the person is kind of in my app. Here's roughly what they're doing. And as long as you keep doing that, the OS can learn lots of interesting things. It can learn um, some forms of automation because it can see, oh, we see you go to this map address all the time. Would you like to open that up? And it can suggest it. You can do manual Siri integration where people can assign commands to doing those kinds of things. And so I think it's kind of exciting, actually, if you look at it from an architectural thing, where we always talked about navigation in our apps, but that's almost a byproduct. What we should also, and more kind of importantly, be thinking about what are the activities people can do in our apps and how do we want to break the app down into those different areas? Yeah, I sort of, funnily enough, think of what they just introduced with, and as we haven't even talked about cross-platform and we probably won't go into it because it's a whole set of complexity. But that being said, with Xamarin Forms 4.0 in Shell, which gives you an abstraction over your entire app sort of hierarchy, what would be uh, interesting about that API is that they have a new navigation URI-based structure. Mm-hmm. So you pass it a string. So for instance, you start to start grouping 
these chunks of your app into URL schemes, which can take parameters. Yes. Which, guess what those parameters could be good for? Hand off things. Like you're handing off the state of where you're at or what you want to do. So for instance, you might have slash picture picker slash editor slash ID and then, or, or file name, and then that passes the file name in which you open up. I wonder if they thought about this when they built the API or if it's a byproduct. I'm so interested, by the way. I have no idea. No inside well, baseball. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that deep links have just been an issue. We've, we've all known that we need to support something like this. So if you're going to go through the effort of building a new navigation system in this modern era, it's just smart to make it something based, URL based, NS user activity based, something, you know, you got to add some kind of high level organization to it because people don't want to start at the beginning of every app. You know, you switch over to the Facebook app. You want that post up, nothing else. Yeah. 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 And also for rehydration too, by the way, often, you know, apps, I don't see it all that often, but sometimes, especially on Android and some of the Google apps will do this is I may close Gmail, like swipe, get out of here when I'm inside of an email and I open it again and literally it rehydrates to that email. It's like, here's where you just were because it saved out that state or that NS user activity, if you will, of what I was doing. Yes. And so that's exactly what you're going to have to start doing on iOS. So any major areas of your app, you're going to have to create an NS user activity to notify the OS that person's in that area right now. And then when you um, create a new scene, you're going to pass in a new user activity saying where you want to take that person to. And then it's up to you in your UI creation, scene creation code to restore the UI to that state that it needs to be to show that deep link to people. So it's definitely more effort. Um, and it definitely exposes your app more because not many people design their apps to be multi-window. Who's going to be in the person editor while they're also in the picture editor, whatever. So you're going to have to make sure you're using your observable objects and your observable collections because the same mm. model objects can very easily now be on two different screens side by side. That's true. Yeah. You want to make sure that often before where you maybe weren't subscribing to notifications or they're shared, they may be updating and hydrating on both back and forth. So wh when are you saving the state and when does it get updated uh, in general? That's uh, tricky to think about. I mean, it would be nice. I mean, I think of a lot of different instances of browsing details, going going through, you know, opening maps to a destination or multiple areas or multiple maps or um, multiple navigation routes or editing multiple photos or things like this, where you'd have to build those separate, you'd almost have to build a UI to be like, you can now edit three pictures, but now you're building one UI that can just be open multiple times, which, I mean, there's an operating system that does something like this. I'm not sure what it's called because it's kind of like you're opening multiple windows mm -hmm. and normally you can have some windows open and yeah. the app open they probably call it doors doors would be a good name for that opening new doors yeah but well the difference here <laughs> yeah i mean i mean the thing is but so now like is it just one app though if you have multiple scenes open or is like a scene its own little app I'm so confused. Right. And that's where App Delegate got split up. So it's still just one app, still one process. So your app can still crash. Here's the interesting thing, though. Instead of your app crashing and making one window in the task 
thing not work anymore. Now you've just made all those not work. So if I open one of these old scenes, it's got to start your app back up, give you that NS user activity, and then you got a deep link into it. So your one app can have these multiple windows. Your app can be shut down because it's in the background. Your app could crash, but it's still just one app and it'll get rehydrated. It'll get spun back up Mm. a lot of times now. (laughs) So in contrary, though, to Chrome or Edge, for instance, or any browser, I'll say a browser where a tab crashes or something like that, normally the process would be that you could that, that tab would close, but the browser would open, like the main app right. opens. Um, in this case, because they're their own process, but they're not their own process. It's still a single process that's hosting multiple things. And that's similar to, let's say, how, well, I mean, it's similar to how, um, I'm trying to think of how that's similar. Okay, look, it's it's multiple windows, just like you said. It's yes. exactly like writing an mm. old desktop app oh. back in the day. It's like writing a modern Mac app. Mac apps behave yeah. this way. Did you come up with one? Yeah. If you open up Visual Studio and you open up some extension thing and that extension thing crashes and they're in the same proc in dev and V, uh, then it would crash, right? You know, anything else. If I'm inside of Streamlabs OBS, which I'm in right (laughs) now, and something else, another window crashes, the whole thing crashes in general because it's not sandbox unless they spun up a different process, which is kind of how browsers are doing because they're all like they're all mini apps with a big shell. Mm -hmm. So, so, but if the shell crashes, then everything crashes. It's, it's a little bit sad. All right. Back in the day, anytime the user would move away from your app, the OS took you down completely. Yeah. 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 So state restoration was a big deal back in the day. We were all super careful. This is exactly where you are in the app. This is like we recorded scroll positions, everything. Because in an ideal world, when they click the button and started your app up, it would come back exactly mm. like what it looked like in uh, in the past. Then Apple enabled this um, background saving. And so it saves the RAM, it saves whatever I can of your process, and then just tries to spin your process back up again. And with increasing hardware, memory has gotten bigger, everything's gotten faster. Our apps stay running, running, you know, in a suspended state, but running for quite a long time. And I think Honestly, most of us have gotten pretty lazy about state restoration these days. Most of my apps, um, well, mine are file-based, so it's a little weird, but I just remember what the last file was that you were looking at and try to pop that one up the last time. It's not the biggest state restoration task ever. But um, it means that if you're going to support all this fancy multi-scene stuff, then you're going to have to make sure your restoration game is on. It's good. Yeah, I have not worried about restoration for a long time. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, also the, the, the point is that the question is, do you, if someone swipes away your app, do you care about your re- restoration at that point? Uh, well, if they swipe you away, that closes a scene. So that is the signal for a scene closing. That's not app closing anymore. When they close the last scene, then maybe your app will actually get closed. So it's not even a reliable way to kill apps anymore because you never know that app might have had a different scene open. Like way over there. Or way over there. <laughs> like way over there somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because I, I did notice that they were showing like the reminders app maybe. That's what it was. And they had like a 20 windows open or whatever. Yeah. 20 scenes open, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like, Look at what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So people can 
drag and drop things, but I also noticed that is 3D touch dead in iPad OS? Is Yes. No. <laughs> so iPad ne- Good. It, it should go away. Is, or is there another long is there a fifth long press? Is there is it is it depth? It's like, you know, it's not it's like when you go to delete it's intention. An app, it's, like, it's not quite it's intention. It reads no. your intention. <laughs> oh, it, it, the face ID yeah. kicks in and it says, We know right now that face that you're making that looks like you want to open a pop-up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> iPad has never had um, 3D touch because oh, really? they don't support it. What it has had is pressure on the, um, um, the pen. pencil. Pencil. Yes. Yeah. But it's never had that. So it was the reason why I never had my apps rely on it because, well, A, only some phones had it back in the day. Now most of them do, but you know, it was an unreliable feature. But B, and I think the reason why I'm like kind of excited, I think you are, is because it's a lot of undiscoverable features. I never, well, it used to be called like force touch. So I still call it force touch. I never do that. Like who, who's going to press hard on their screen? It's a piece of glass. I'm not going to like shove my finger into it. So I think they've decided is that just long press. All right. Android does it. It's become a it's colloquialism. It's a language. Touch is a language. And long press means I'm interested in this thing. Tell me more. <laughs> and yeah. so iPad has adopted that. Thank goodness. And I think it's going to spread to all the phones too. I like that. That's a good idea. And I will say that with 3D touch, there was a few things that you could do with it, like kind of transitioning into an, an activity, but also the the, the icon which they, they introduced on Android too, that you could long press on an icon and get more information. And that one is relatively useful when you want to delete an app because there's a little pop-up that says like info, delete this app and it has a bunch of other stuff into it. But I don't I ever use it for the other actions that are in it because they're not really discoverable in general. But I do love, for instance, in Pocket Cast, I can long press on a podcast and then it goes into an edit menu activity and different things happen because I want to do more to this thing. You don't often want to do more to the things of an app because our brains are like, I just want to launch the app. Like give me the app, right? <laughs> In general. But where are the with, buttons? Yeah. Where are the buttons? Yeah. So so that's cool. Uh that there's a now proper long press, long tap, long press. Yeah. Is is it a new but- gesture? It, well, it's kind of new just because we've always had the long gesture, but what they've done is attached like you were saying, uh, when you long press, there was some built-in OS OS wide activity. You said, here is another view controller. When they press hard here, pop up this view controller. So you could kind of think of that as a context menu on a desktop. So on any mm-hmm. object, you can right click and you get a context menu. Yes. Things to do. Stuff. <laughs> Stuff to do. Um, I like that. Yeah. And we haven't really had context menus um, in iOS. We do have one kind. And that's when, say, you're in a text editor and you highlight some stuff and then you tap on it once, a little black menu comes up with cut, copy, paste, look up, define. It's, um, I think it's called like UI menu controller. It's not hard to add to your views. You should definitely look into it. Mm. But it's pretty limited. It's just a bunch of black buttons with some text on it and they're only ever able to fit like three or four of them on a screen at a time so then you got to scroll or you got to hit the arrow a lot of people don't know but you can just scroll that thing so don't use those arrows they're really hard but um you want to do more 
Uh, so in the iPad, you would maybe do a pop-up menu. On the iPhone, you would do something else. Uh, you could do a modal controller, or you could do that 3D touch thing. And so they're just kind of unifying the space of what do you do on the iPad, what do you do on the phone to get a more a, a context menu, but it's beyond just a bunch of commands. So you can put a picture yeah. in there. Hmm. You can put some actions in there. You can put controls in there. It could be a whole different UI. And it's just unifying the experience. The cool thing is when you use um, Catalyst technology, then it actually does um, respond to right-clicking. So that's how you create right-click menus. Ah, so if you start to kind of opt into this, because what I've heard, Frank, is that starting this fall, I can literally, no matter what, no matter what my application is, I can check a checkbox and then my app is now on the Mac. That's what I under, this is my comprehension of of it which is that i no longer ever have to build a mac app because my mac apps are been written for me for free no matter what that's correct that's absolutely correct so long as you are a perfect coder and abided by all api documentation and even the documentation that wasn't written you know that stuff you just should have known no i see Uh, as long as you abided by that too then i think you'll just be fine you'll be fine oh perfect okay cool well i'm excited to run scoreboard my scoreboard application (laughs) i'm excited to rebuild um rebuild my countdown timer meetup manager can come to it yeah i I like that why not right let's do it well i'm super i'm super excited we've already talked about catalyst but a lot of the reasons that you're going to invest in all this new ipad scene stuff is because just like that other theoretical operating system called doors mac is able to show these things called windows wow crazy (laughs) yeah and your scenes become windows and it's kind of nice because um mac windows if they're the same type already have tabbing built into them so you'll actually get free tabbing in your app if you're like a document-based app but otherwise whenever you pop open a new scene or someone does a draggy and droppy operation it creates a new window, which I think is super nice because Macs are super drag and droppy. That's kind of what defines them. I like that. Yeah, it's I'll be really intrigued to see how this applies long term in some of my applications, just what I have to do, how do I have to build it in? Or if I don't decide to do anything and just click a checkbox to put my existing app on a Mac, will it function and be okay? Or will it actually start to make me build a better iPad application? And will Apple's end all be all scheme to get better <laughs> phone, tablet, and Mac apps. Will it all work? And will it be enough for you to not have to write a Mac application for iCircuit, for Calca in general? That is the real test in general of Catalyst, which is will you be able to take your existing iPad slash iPhone app, click publish, go, and now it's just on Mac? And like that's the qu- question. Yeah. Um, I think you will be able to, but you're definitely going to want to invest time in all this stuff that we just talked about, because otherwise you're just going to have, honestly, it'll be just like a a lot like a web app, honestly, without a back button. No, it should have a back button as long as you put a back button in, but it'll just be like a little web app stuck in a little window to really make it feel OSC. You got to put in this extra effort of, um, creating these activities, handling multiple scenes. And something we didn't get to because it's more just on the Mac side, but menu, menu bar. You can define menu bars in iPad apps now, 
which is totally mm. trippy because iPads don't have a menu bar. So why would you do that? <laughs> For the Mac. For the Mac. And yeah. they try to make other reasons like Siri, et cetera. But yeah. Now, do I have to use the new stuff? If I, if I don't want to do anything and I don't change my app, will it just magically not get multi-window? Like is, is basically what I'm saying is if I have my app and I'm like, I don't want to do any work, Frank, because I'm just not about it. I don't want to not super about it. And if I don't do anything, nothing bad happens, correct? Like all of a sudden my app doesn't become a multi-window app magical thing or does it? You know, when I recompile against iOS 13. As you were asking, I actually had to quickly search the documentation because I wasn't sure what they had deprecated and not deprecated. But as far as I can see, they didn't, did not deprecate anything. Oh, shoot. Well, they didn't deprecate too many things. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so you should be fine for now. Uh, the problem is these are parallel APIs, the scene API and the app delegate APIs. So the writing is on the wall. Uh, it's not that much extra code to support the scene API. And if you're doing something like Xamarin Forms, it'll really be up to Xamarin Forms to support it. So hopefully just write to David and say, hey, David. <laughs> Listen to this podcast. <laughs> when are you going to update for iPad OS? <laughs> See what you think. Yeah. Well, okay. So go read some documentation. We'll link to some videos, app delegate, NS user activity, long tapping, context menus, free Mac applications. I'm all in. I'm going to build all my iPad applications to be absolutely amazing for iPad OS. The best OS that is just iOS. I just don't believe you. Wait, <laughs> does that also mean that truly then Mac OS is really just iOS? No, don't don't take that from what we just said. If if iPad <laughs> is just iOS and you can take an iPad application and make it a Mac OS transitive property, that must mean that a Mac OS app is just an iOS app. Here's the real question, James. <laughs> How many windows can you have in a scene? <laughs> 51? 50, as many as you want. <laughs> 50, as many as you want. All the windows. All right. <laughs> All right, Frank. Well, I'm over this iPad stuff. I actually do have to go watch some videos and uh, probably eat some dinner tonight at some point. But before we get out of here, there is one important question, not about iPad. It is about the Frank Krueger IoTification challenge of your fan, not oh. a fan of the podcast, but a fan that blows <laughs> air on you. Is this thing magically IoTified? Is it on the ground in a hundred pieces? What is the status of the challenge? It's been one week. Don't let me down. All right, James. It was totally on the ground in 100 pieces. And I had that moment where I was like, what did I just do? No podcast is worth this. That was a fully functioning fan. And now it's not. It's on the ground in oh, pieces. No. But I'm proud to say that A, I learned how it works. And B, figured out how I could IOTify it. But more importantly, C, got it partially reassembled so it could semi-function as a fan for the next day because it's really hot here in Seattle. So that is to say, the operation is moving along nicely. I'll say it's 50% complete. I know how to, right. I know what I needs to be done. I just need to be willing to start cutting wires on the fan. So stay okay. tuned for update number two in a week. I'm excited about it and Please don't electrocute yourself, sir. Don't do it. Well, I've already shocked myself once, so I'll just try not to electrocute myself because, yeah. Nothing wrong with a little shock, okay? Nothing wrong with that. That just means 
you're experiencing something new for the first time. It was you're like, just, I don't know what I'm... it was reminding me that it was plugged in. I had forgotten that it was plugged in, and now it's like, hey, I'm plugged in. I'm like, oh yeah, you're plugged in. <laughs> Did I tell you the point, the part where I was disassembling my parents' old computer, and I shocked myself on the power supply built into the computer? Oh, that's DC too. That can be kind of rough. <laughs> It was not pleasant. Now, this was a was old it? compact machine from 1998, but the power supply built into it was fully exposed. Like when yeah. you open the case, everything inside of it was fully exposed. So the big transformer. So you probably touched a transformer. Maybe even a capacitor would have had enough to get through your skin. I may have moved back a few inches that day in <laughs> in, in space like multiple dimensions when i spat when i touched it i literally moved i did not jump it moved me back i would say it was i don't know what how many like what the wattage was on it but like what's the wad what's a low wattage that you could get electrocuted and not have to go to the hospital uh so by hundred so just i'm not trying to be pedantic but electrocuted literally means you died from an electrical shock Okay, so what's the <laughs> what is the 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 amperage okay, or voltage so or wattage? Like what in, what is in, the thing to be worried about in, in, I'm not in America and in Europe? The wall cannot kill you. It will not kill you because that's why we have fuses in the walls. That's why homes get certified. There is no fuse that's going to let enough power through for you to die. That said, the fuses on your like washer and dryer and things like that are bigger, and those ones might let you die. So hard to say. Um, you are going to need a lot of power going through you. I don't want to give a number because someone's going to like try, and that would be bad. <laughs> okay. But let's just say it's more than the wall. Definitely a lot more than okay. the wall. How much power comes through my wall? It's it. You have to look at the RMS power, I guess, because it's AC. So there's different mm. different amounts of power at different points. Okay, so I have a, I have one of those APC big power things. Yep. It says it's 127 volts. Yeah. So call it 127 volts. Then it's how many amps you multiply the voltage by the amps to get your power. So if it's 120 volts and one amp, it's 120 watts, like a light bulb, like an old fashioned bad light bulb. Uh, you can handle that. It's you're 100, fine. 100 watts. Yeah. 100 watts. You're, right you're fine. That's a load into it. Yeah, okay. You'll be fine. You can handle 100 watts. Uh, the thing is, the humans also act as an insulator. So you need a lot of voltage in order to get the current to go through us. You got to break down. <laughs> so um, you need you need a high voltage. Both. You need, You want power and high voltage. <laughs> And this has been a great way to have an informative end to the podcast, talking about electrocuting yourself. Well, that's going to do it for this week's podcast. I encourage everyone to not mess around with open electrical things uh, without rubber gloves or without static shocks. things that don't. Static shocks. Static Those shock. are fine. Yeah. Those just are don't, harmless. Yeah, just don't. Little static okay. shock. Well, <laughs> don't. We, we, we encourage you not to mess ever with electrical engineering unless you know what you're doing. Um, but also to subscribe to the podcast. You can go right now on your favorite podcast app, or if you don't have a favorite podcast app, 
go into the app store and download a podcast app. Or if you're on an iOS device, it's literally built into the operating system. It says podcast. It's there. Just type merge conflict, hit that subscribe button, and also do it on all of your friends and your family's devices. They will thank you for it and make sure that auto download of new episodes is checked. They will just be like, wow, what a wonderful morning every single Monday. I can now drive to work and I'm so much happier now. Thank you. You are the best son and or daughter in the entire world. So boom, you're good to go. Additionally, you can check us out at mergeconflict.fm. You can write to us, tell us your story of being electrically uh, electrocuted in the past, just like me doing work on my computer. It was a lot of fun. And now it's a great story that I can tell Frank over and over again. Again, you should not do that. Don't do that. But you can write to us at mergeconflict.fm or follow us on Twitter at mergeconflictfm. Additionally, for the first time ever, Frank and I Twitch stream this on my Twitch account, twitch.tv slash James Montemagno. Follow that account, jam that follow button. You'll get notified when I go live coding, but also if we ever decide to do another podcast. Again, a lot of good people hung out with us and it was a lot of fun. So that's going to do it for this week's podcast. Until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Kruger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.